This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we continue our look at the responses to Hellenism in the world of first century Judaism, this time examining the group known as the Essenes. And again, we're going to have a presentation we'll get into with some photos to help. And uh, Brent will be using his chapter markers. Chapter markers. To have those come up if you're using podcasting software that allows for that. Seriously, they're fantastic. Yeah. If you're using an iPhone and you're not using Overcast, I don't know, man. I don't I'm know using an iPhone and I'm not using Overcast. Well, you're going to have to you know, check that out. All right, man. Brent's over here telling me I'm not with it. I'm not very <laughs> hip. All right. So uh, we've talked about the Sadducees and we've talked about the Herodians. What would you say is the thing that bonds them together, Brent? Well, they're both uh, devoted followers of the culture of Hellenism. Okay, so they're pro-Hellenism. And that's, we don't want to oversimplify that. There would have been all kinds of gradient scales to their devotion to Hellenism. There would have been plenty of Herodians that would have been reluctantly Hellenistic. But um, they were complex people just as much as you and I today are complex people. Um, But yes, they are very pro-Hellenism. So we're looking at five different groups and their different responses to Hellenism. And the first two groups we looked at are pro-Hellenism. Their position would have been, I like Hellenism, at least a little bit, if not a whole lot. And I think I can put my God and my Hellenism together, and I think it works. Now, there was a group. um, uh, As far as we know, and man, again, dig into history here. Do some extra study and discuss it. Because history loves to argue about the Essenes. Um, and who the Essenes were. That's what we want to talk about today, the group called the Essenes. First group was Sadducees. Second group was Herodians. Third group we want to talk about is the Essenes. And history debates who they were and where they were and how they came to be. Um, History always seems to kind of, historians and scholars kind of cycle around, and they always land the conversation in the same place. And they kind of draw a bunch of conclusions, and for years it will just kind of sit there, and everybody will be in agreement. And then something will happen, somebody will bring the conversation to the table again, and everybody will get all fired up and disagree for a while, and then it will come back and resolve in the same place. And then it just kind of goes on these cycles. So there's a lot of debate about who the Essenes were and how much we actually know about them. But what we seem to know um, is the Essenes were almost almost largely men, but we have, in some of the most recent excavations, found some female bodies in the graveyards, in the cemeteries. Uh, and that's thrown scholars for a loop. I don't really know what to do with that because as far as we knew, we thought we knew, Essenes were completely men. And we thought that Essenes were almost completely driven by priests. Um, it wasn't just a random group of people, but these were priests that had decided that because of the corruption that we talked about with the Sadducees, they said God has abandoned this system. It is so corrupt. It's so broken. Uh, we can't even be a part of this anymore. And so they left and they went out into the desert and literally they went out into the middle of the desert um, to a place we're going to look at called Qumran. That's where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, But they went out into the desert and they uh, set up shop and they braced themselves for the end of the world, for God's coming judgment. They were a very uh, separatist group, and in a lot of ways, you could say they were driven by kind of a fanatical commitment to a particular version of eschatology. They, they saw the corruption of the temple as a sign of the end, and they were going out to the desert to prepare 
kind of like a, I don't want to make them sound too crazy here because I love the Essenes. They're, they're, of all the five groups, I, I cling to the Essenes with my heart. Um, and we'll end there by the time we're done. But, but I'm making them sound almost like preppers because uh, they have almost that feel to them. Their theology certainly has that feel to it. They went out into the desert to become sons of light. And they are rejecting the sons of darkness. And there is a huge condemnation of the temple system. Uh, and some of them, we have found in history, continued to serve at the temple. Um, Zechariah might be an example of somebody that had Essene connections, we'll look at here in a moment, uh, and still did his duty. He's, he was still serving in the temple. He would, have told, he would have told anybody that the temple system was completely corrupt. But maybe he personally felt like he couldn't give up on the call that God gave to priests. Like, I can't abandon my call of priesthood. I don't care how broken the system is. I have to do my part. So some of the Essenes continued to serve in the temple, but many of them, if not most of them, had abandoned the system entirely. They had come out into the middle of the desert in order to be the separate group, and their commitment was to the path. They said the path has gotten so convoluted and so corrupted that somebody needs to go out into the desert and somebody needs to make sure that um, somebody is keeping the path. One, one, of, the, um, one of the passages that they clung to uh, was Jeremiah six sixteen and following, where Jeremiah says, stand at the crossroads, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. And, uh, and the Essenes essentially were the group that were saying, someday Israel's going to wake up and they're going to want to know where the path is. And somebody had better be ready to tell them what the path is and where to find it. And that was what they went out to the desert to do. And so they went out to the desert and they started copying these scrolls. Most of us are aware of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm not going to do a podcast on it. I'm not an expert in it. But you can do lots of research online about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many are familiar with it. When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that was the work of, as far as history, they debate. But as far as history has come to somewhat except the Essenes were responsible for the writing of the Dead Sea Scrolls. They went out to the desert to copy and be devoted to the text. They went out to the desert to know the path and to walk the path, to know the path and to walk the path. And by the path, I mean the text. Um, they went out to know the text and to write the text, to know the text and to walk the text. Um, and this is what they devoted their whole life to. So you have some pictures here. That first one there is the iconic image of that was the cave, one of the caves, actually not the cave. We found the cave a couple miles from this picture. But the one of the iconic caves where we found so many jars with scrolls in them uh, was that cave right there. I totally forgot which cave it is. I want to say that's cave 19, but I can't remember. Check me on that. But that's one of the iconic pictures of Qumran. Now, we got a couple more pictures here that show you uh, some of the pieces of the village itself, the compound uh, that was Qumran. And we only got a few pictures of some mikvahs here that we're going to show you. Uh, those are baptistries. Um, they would have been filled with water and uh, and they would have dipped and baptized themselves. Here's another picture of another uh, mikvah there. And then finally, we have one more. Um, to give you an this idea. This last one significantly bigger than the other two, it seems like. Yeah, and that's really interesting. If this were a pharisaical mikvah, there's a lot of his, again, there's a lot of historical debate about this because they're not the right. A mikvah has to be, according to the Talmud, the exact dimensions that are stipulated. And so all mikvahs are the same size. The problem is, is Essenes don't follow rabbinical, pharisaical Judaism. They have a different kind of baptism. 
We'll talk about that later in session three. They have a different kind of, so they don't follow the rules of the Talmud. That's not what they adhered to, um, like Pharisees did. So these are mikvahs, and they're all different sizes and basically whatever they could use it for. Uh, but you're right, this one's significantly bigger. And um, and this is where, now let me give you some context here. Uh, they went out to the desert to, what did I say they went out to do, Brent? To know the path and walk the path. To know the path and to walk the path. Well, that starts with knowing the path. And so they went out to copy the text. And so one of the rooms that we've seen uh, on these trips I love to take my students into is the scribe's room. We actually found this huge table that's in the museum a huge scribe's table where they would have written. And we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them gave us the order of the Essenes. It told us all about what it meant to live there and how they did what they did. Um, and uh, and and one of the things we know is how they wrote their text. And it was a four-person job. So if you were writing out the book of Genesis, remind me of how the first few words of Genesis, Brent. In the beginning. In the beginning, right? So if you're, if you're going to be writing down these, copying these scrolls, um, uh, you're going to have one person that is reciting the word and you're going to have a person standing behind that person, double checking to make sure they said the right word. And you're going to have somebody writing the word and you're going to have somebody over their shoulder, double checking to make sure they wrote the right word in the right way. So it's a four person job. So if we're doing in the beginning, you'd say in, and the person would not, the person behind them would nod their head, got that word right. Somebody would write the word in, and then the person behind that person is looking over their shoulder going, yeah, they got that right. Okay. The, and the process repeats. Beginning, and the process repeats. And every time you got to the name of God, you would put your pen, put your quills down. You would go to a mikvah, and you would have to wash before continuing. Everybody in the room. Okay. This is the devotion they had to wanting to get. I mean, part of the reason that we know our Bibles are so reliable is because of the commitment of the Essenes to transcribing these scrolls. Um, prior to the 1950s, when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we had all kinds of questions about how accurate our Bibles were. It's been 2,000 years. It was 1,000 years before the manuscript that we use. How do we know that we didn't get this all changed and messed up? We found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we found that there was less than 2% error rate in our translation as it had been transcribed down through the manuscripts. Just astounding. And we owe that in large part to the commitment of the Essenes to know the path. But then you also see in that their commitment to walk the path, to make sure that every time they wrote the name of God, they were completely washed and pure before they would write the name of God on those scrolls. Um, the next picture here, uh, go to the next one. This is a picture. It's kind of hard to make out, but there's a picture here of the dam. They actually, uh, mikvah in the Essene worldview, uh, the baptistries had to be filled with living water, living water, what's called maim chaim. I think we talked about that in session one. We talked about maim. We did a whole lesson on maim chaim. Has to be living. And what did we talk about in session one? What does what does it have to be in order to be living water, Brent? It has to uh, be moving of its own accord. It has to come from God, right? Yeah. So the moment you put it in a bucket, it's no longer living water because it's getting there on my power. So that means that there's only two forms of water that are living water. What are they? So like a river, or uh, or where does that river have to come from? From a from a stream, a spring, right? A spring, okay. Yeah. So spring water from underground would be from God. That'd be living water. And what's the other one? Rain. Rain, right? Now, in order for it to be living water, it, you're in the middle of the desert. How hot was it here, Brent, when you were here? It was toasty. 
<laughs> and by toasty, we mean like a hundred yep. and it was 110 degrees ish when we were there that day. Uh, well, yeah, like 105, 110, yeah. somewhere around yep. there. Okay. So that's what it's like there in this part of the Negev, the desert. I didn't see any water sitting around just, just no. to make that clear. <laughs> yeah. There's a dead sea just off to our, and that's not water that we want to use. That's definitely nice poisonous water. Um, so yeah, there was no water just hanging around Qumran. But they had a commitment that their mikvahs had to be filled with living water. How are you going to do that in the middle of the desert if you can't bring it? Like it has to be, it has to be brought by God's power. It's going to have to get there from rain, springs, and gravity because I can't touch it. So they built this dam here in this photo to catch the rainwater that would fall in this wadi. And then they actually, uh, and this next picture shows you the, the, like the canal. They had a plastered um, waterway that they had dug to go all the way from that wadi all the way down to the village. And I can't remember how many meters this uh, canal goes from the dam. This was the level of commitment they had to doing the right thing, the, the God's thing, God's way. Um, this was their commitment to walking the path. The other passage, I, I talked about Jeremiah 6 earlier. The other passage that would often come to mind with the Essenes, and they would use it all the time, is Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. I mean, imagine these priests that have gone out to the desert and how they, they hear this as their personal call. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord double for all of her sins. A voice of one crying out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every mountain brought down and every valley raised up. The rough places made smooth and the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This was one of their staple passages and what they believed their call was and why they had gone out to the desert. Um, by the way, if you're hearing, is there a Bible character when we keep talking about the Essenes that you keep going, man, I feel like I, I'm hearing these echoes of who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. It is very, very likely um, that uh, Zechariah, as a righteous priest, had connections to the Essene movement. And we know that John the Baptist was dedicated to the Lord. There's hints that he was a Nazarite. He had the Nazarite vow. Uh, it's very possible that Zechariah, as a priestly uh, as a priestly family, had taken John. One of the common things you could do if you wanted to dedicate your son to the Lord is you could take him to a place like Qumran or an Essene compound, and you could let them raise your child, essentially like a boarding school, and raise them in their ways. It appears everything about John the Baptist smacks and rings of Essene theology and worldview, except for the way that he engages the populace. He goes out and he starts baptizing, and that's very un-Essene-like. Uh, the Essenes kind of separated themselves and wanted culture to come to them when the end times came. John goes out to the people and starts doing priestly work there. So John's a little different than the Essenes, but without a doubt, everything we hear from John seems that he's been influenced by the Essenes. And we'll go over John the Baptist in a lot more detail as we go through the Gospels, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're going to do that a lot. Um I just love, I love the Essenes um, and their commitment. Uh, now, yes, they were kind of, they were kind of fanatics. Um, they had this um, radical 
uh, commitment to this end times understanding, this eschatology. And they believed that if they just went out to the desert, if you remember that passage, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every mountain brought down and every valley raised up. The rough places made smooth and the rugged places a plain. That They said that's what we're going out to the desert to do. And the very next line in the passage said, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. They believed that if they would stay true to their call, God would show up. Now, most of us would hear that and go, man, these guys were radical fanatics, kind of crazy and a little loony. But here's the thing. The very next picture you're going to see on your presentation shows you uh, from the very top, up above the mountain, right above Qumran, looking towards the Dead Sea. Less than three miles away, you see this green, all that green, those trees. That's where the Jordan River pours into the Dead Sea. That's where John the Baptist, we're told, began his ministry. One of three places that we're told about in the Gospels that John is baptizing people. And that's where Jesus shows up. So two observations. Number one, why is John the Baptist baptizing people less than three miles away from Qumran if he's not connected to the Essenes? That's just a huge connection for me. And just to keep the perspective here, in this photo, the lower right section, you kind of see like a small little batch of trees and like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that section is where where we looked at the mikvahs earlier. Yep, that's the compound of Qumran sitting right there in the, what do we call it, the foreground? Is that the foreground of yeah, the picture? It's, Lower it's right? pretty foreground, yeah. And then in the background were those green, not the immediate clumps of trees on the far left, but kind of dead center, back center of the picture. You see all those green right at the edge of the Dead Sea. That's where, the, that's where John the Baptist is baptizing. So tell me that they're wrong, that God would show up, because he did. Like they kept the path. They were dedicated to knowing the path and walking the path. And less than three miles away, Jesus shows up to be publicly baptized and begin his ministry and then is led out into that exact same desert to be tempted. You're looking at where it all happened within a stone's throw of Qumran. It's just so compelling to me. I I want to be an Essene. And there's a whole lesson here that I do that you only get to hear if you come on my trips. I don't do this very much. I pretty much share all my lessons, but there are a handful that I only give on on my trips. And if you want to hear one of the most touching, most meaningful lessons for me that I've ever learned, I came back from Israel. I want to be an Essene. Now, let's, let's take that and actually examine the Essenes. What's the problem with the Essenes? They're not talking to anybody. Yeah. We just said, what was the positive of the Herodians? They're talking to everybody. They're right in the middle of it, right? The Essenes are the exact opposite. They have completely, there is no crossroads of the earth here. There's no Shephelah tension. They have separated themselves and taken their fanatical selves out into the middle of the desert. Um, and that's part of the reason why I love the Essenes. If I could, my introverted self would love to just run away and sit in the mountains and dedicate myself to the Bible for the rest of my life. Never have to talk to another human being again. I mean, we're talking 2,000 years between the time that they were doing their work and when we found their work. Yes. Like, this is a place where nobody wants to be. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's their that's their struggle. That's their... The positive, though, obviously, um, their dedication, their dedication to the, to the text. I... I have a personal belief I heard from my own Rabbi Ray. Uh, he said this, and I've just clung to it. I love it. He says, I, not only do I think the Essenes were right in that if they stayed devoted to the path, God would show up. 
Ray says, I believe it would happen again. I believe if God ever finds another group of people that want to be that devoted to knowing the path and walking the path, he says, I think God will show up. And I have held on to that for a long time. Part of the reason why I even started Bema in the first place. I think God's looking for some Essenes. I don't think he wants us to run out in the desert and be separated. I think he wants us right in the middle of the action. But God is looking for a group of Essenes, people who want to know the path and walk the path, people who will get up every single day to get the text in them, to memorize text, to know as much about. And if God will get a group of people that will be that committed and devoted, I think the glory of the Lord will be revealed. So here's to preparing the way. This is definitely my favorite part of the trip. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. Qumran was a powerful place. It's pretty good. Y'all ought to come. I highly recommend it. All right. All right. Well, uh, if you want to get in a discussion group, check out BamaDiscipleship.com. Go to the schedule page. You'll find a map there with discussion groups around the country and even occasionally internationally. We got a new group in Spokane. I know we got a ton of listeners. Got a launch group. I shouldn't say a new group. We got a launch group in Spokane. Somebody in Spokane's looking for people to talk about this with, and I know I only have like twenty alumni there that all listen to this podcast. So somebody ought to get hooked up with that group and get something going. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. If you wanna, if you wanna get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, see what you think about about these responses. Uh, give us an idea of of which groups you're identifying with and uh, we'll wrestle together with you. So thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.